0: Good morning. Thanks for welcoming Holly this morning. As you uh, may remember, if you were around last week or were able to listen online, uh, we were talking about awakening to God's call, the ripples of calling that God has on our lives. And Holly uh, had this unexpected awakening as she was basically sent to be a board member for the Okanagan Valley Pregnancy Care Center. So uh, Holly, can you tell us a little bit, how did that awaken new stuff in your mothering and how you have seen this city?
1: Yeah, I can talk about that for sure. Um, We talked about how sometimes an awakening is just saying yes to something that's presented to you. So um, I'm a mom, I care about babies, I care about the city, um, but I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a fundraiser. I didn't really know what I would even have to contribute, but of course God did, And um, I'm very honoured that I can support the Pregnancy um, Care Centre as they practically help parents in our cities when they're facing unplanned pregnancies. Um, Serving on the board has definitely shifted my perspective. um, And on the tough days, which are lots of them, it's made me more grateful and thankful for what I really have. Um, I was fully supported when I found out I was going to be a mom. I had a house. I had a husband. um, But I can't imagine the fear and feelings when you don't have some or even any of those things. Hmm. Um, And I know from the many, many client stories that the Pregnancy Centre has made a real tangible difference in the lives of many babies and parents in our city. Um, And also because the people who serve there have Jesus as their example, right? They just want to follow His love and um, they have His hope. So I'm just, yeah, who wouldn't want to be a part of that?
0: That's (laughs) so awesome. And you even kind of got pushed into it right so I, holly also has a call in her life as a teacher uh, in the city here you, you have this really awesome story where all these ripples of your life kind of collided in your classroom mm-hmm. can you tell us that
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, Last week, I was talking to my grade four class about the Pregnancy Care Center Banquet, and we um, made some decorations for the banquet. And um, so I was telling them about the work that the Pregnancy Care Center does and um, how they are so important in our city. And one of the girls in my class, she puts up her hand, she says, I know about the Pregnancy Care Center. And I said, wow, that's really awesome. What do you know? And she said, well, they help my mom. And I said, great. Um, She said, you know what? I was born through there. My mom needed help, and now there's me. So that was just a really, um, yeah, a really impactful story that 10 hmm. years later, this little girl was helping something that helped her and her mom and helped her come to be. So yeah, it's just awesome. really impactful. And the stories just continue. You hear about them all the time, just continuous God's goodness and his love and care for us.
0: Yeah, it's so good. So good. you never know the difference your life is making. So, it's so awesome. Uh, Holly's going to pray for us in just a second, but the, uh, the, The Pregnancy Care Center has their fundraising banquet coming up. They have a table set up in the hub. Uh, So if you want to get some tickets and go and support this, we just really encourage that. One of our ministry partners as a church. So uh, please do check that out after the service. And there's homemade donuts today, by the way. So just saying. (laughs) Just go over there. All right. Now that you are all sufficiently distracted... uh, Holly's going to pray for us as a church this morning.
1: Okay, let's pray. Um, God, on the weekend dedicated to giving thanks, we just give you thanks. We could say it um, one million times and it would never be enough. We're thankful for this church and for the callings in our city. And we're thankful for the awakenings that are occurring and the stirrings in our heart. I pray um, for us that we would respond and continue to rise up. Uh, We thank you for your perfect example and uh, we just love you. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Holly. Well, church, hope you've had a good week and uh, happy Thanksgiving. All right. Well, as we dive into the word together this morning, would you, uh, would you turn to uh, the gospel of Mark? Keep your finger in there. You'll be uh, we'll be looking at a section from Mark chapter one, and then we're also going to dive into Matthew as uh, some parts of Matthew. So, uh, just before Mark. So, um, you know, we all grew up uh, shaped by a set of values, uh, and most of them were unwritten, weren't they? Uh, I've shared before that I grew up as an only child, and my parents were very simple people in many regards. Neither of my parents ever went to high school or to college or university, so they never took a course on strategic planning and mission, vision, and values. <laughs> never did that. Uh, and there was, there was no list on the wall, uh, but as, as I look back, I can see ways I was shaped by very purposeful values, by very purposeful ways of doing things, this basic set of fundamental beliefs that shaped who we were as a family. And it was almost a year ago right now, and it'll be November the 8th, the year that my mom passed away, and she had suffered greatly with a degenerative condition, and we walked with her from a distance, as I maybe shared with you before, because she was in Ontario. And I, so I, I wasn't there to sit with her, at the end of her life, which had been my great hope and desire as she slipped into the presence of Jesus. But I have this, and even in that moment, I had this great peace uh, because in our last visit with her a few weeks before she died, we continued this basic family value that was unstated in my growing up years, but was always practiced. We talked. It's just what we did. My peace with not being with my mom when she died was connected to the fact that I knew that she knew Jesus, of course, that her suffering was over, and it was connected to the value of conversation that I never realized was such an important family value until we couldn't talk together anymore. Jen and I had talked out everything with my mom Uh, her funeral wishes, her disappointments and griefs, her hopes and dreams, her financial wishes, anything we could think of that needed forgiving or reconciling, and so many things that made us laugh and cry together. We just talked. And when she passed, I discovered this irreplaceable peace in me because we talked. And in retrospect, I realized that value of talking, while not hung on our wall, was present every single day, particularly around our dinner table. And so after meals, we would linger for an hour sometimes, or more, just talking. And once we took guys into our home, and I shared the story last week of this guy named Larry that moved into our home. Um, Once guys like him, and then we took in strays. And so when these guys came into our homes, these conversations around the table could be hilarious and ridiculous and a source of my mother's consternation. But they're also very serious and deep. And I remember how much I looked forward to them. And so when Jen and I started dating, this was new to her, those lingering after-dinner talks that wandered from the state of the Maple Leafs, and there was lots to talk about there, to (laughs) politics, to theology, to the next best practical joke. And I'm grateful for all that unspoken, central value of deep, deep talks. And so when sorrow burst into our story in the final years of my mom's life, it was this value that contributed to the deep experience of God's peace. And we all grew up, all of us in this room, grew up shaped by values. Core beliefs that shaped core actions. And some of those were good. And some hurt us, and there were a few that did hurt me and our, my family. And there's some maybe we're still recovering from <laughs> as we learn new ways and values, but they were there. Can you think of some that have shaped you? For good, for bad. We're into this known and known, this biblical foundation of our churches family, our church family's mission, vision, and values, and we've summarized things as we've moved along. Uh, That our mission is to know Jesus and make him known. Our vision is to co-create communities where each of us is awakened and equipped to live out our unique calling that God has on our lives. And Holly shared a great story about that this morning. And then there are our values, these core beliefs that shape our culture as we live out our mission and our vision. And so we begin today with this first of our five values, which is deeper in prayer, scripture, and faith. Uh, now, the launch of Jesus' three-year ministry that led to the cross and the resurrection and his ascension to the throne and the coming of the Holy Spirit began with a deep and simple word from his Heavenly Father. So turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 9. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. And just as you're turning there, we have some sermon notes that we're producing for each of these messages. They're available online that you can go and check out and use them in a life group or around your family table, if you wish. And there's some paper copies available at the starting point desk. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. After, or sorry, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Verse 12. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And it stopped. Now, this is the one community of holy God revealing his family values. (laughs) Do you notice the values of God when you hear the Father's voice in this passage of scripture? You are my beloved son. There's a value of belonging and identity being given communicated to the Son. There's a sense of belovedness. I love you. You are divinely loved, unchangingly, unchallengingly, uncompromisingly before you've done anything to earn it. Loved. And there is this believing and delighting in the Son. I am pleased with you. I am so pleased with you. And so Jesus moves toward the cross from this foundation of divine values that reveal what God is like and what God will do for us. And then in the Gospels, we are privy to several close and astounding talks between Jesus and his Father. There are many prayers of Jesus in the Scriptures. And they're really divine family table conversations. And we get to listen in on them. And John 17 is one of those, which you could read at some point. And the, the kids are talking about that one this morning too. Because going deeper in prayer, as we're talking about, is to become a welcome participant in the divine family conversation. Have you ever thought of prayer that way? That God is constantly having a conversation, and you get to participate in it, to listen in, to contribute, What's striking, however, is that the awesome download of these divine family values that Jesus hears in Mark chapter 1 are immediately followed by those other words. Did you catch them? The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was there 40 days, and what happened? He was tempted by Satan. The Spirit leads him into a place of conflict. Now, Mark doesn't give us the play-by-play of how that all went, but both Matthew and Luke, and Luke do. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and you can turn there if you want. In Mark chapter one, 4, uh, the nutshell of what happens is this. Because it seems, actually, that a divine fa- family value is getting thrown into the deep end. <laughs> okay? like, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the deep end, And Satan's temptations are a direct attack on the family values bestowed by the Father. If Satan will mess with your identity and your sense of purpose to detach you from the Father, he wins. That's one of Satan's great tactics. And so, Two times in Mark chapter 4, Satan tempts Jesus by saying, if you are the son of God. He goes right after his identity. And the last temptation is, all these kingdoms and their power I will give to you if you fall and worship me. And this is often Satan's tactics in our lives as well. He'll go after your identity to confuse you, and he'll promise you better things if only you turn your attention away from the God who is and bow to lesser things. And here's what's striking as we consider going deeper in prayer and scripture and faith. Jesus prepared for this attack through prayer and fasting. He centers himself on the Father's voice. Fasting and prayer prepare him for battle. And then Jesus responds to the deceptions of Satan with the sure truth of Scripture. Each lie of Satan is countered with the words of Jesus, the words that point to God's truth. It is written. Three times he says that in response to the temptations. It is written. It is written. It is written. Verses 4, 7, and 10. Now listen, Jesus doesn't magically conjure up those words. He clearly had a practice of being in Scripture, which is his arsenal when the devil sought to devour him. Matthew chapter 4, verse 6, Jesus Jesus even has to counter Satan's twisting of Scripture because Satan also says, it is written. Is it not written? And he quotes Scripture to Jesus which Jesus then needs to correct with his own. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> it is written. So we need to be in the deep end to discern when truth is twisted. Are you with me? And many of us live deceived because we're not in, deep in, in the deep end of, of scripture and prayer and in this divine family table conversation to even know and discern when we're being deceived. The truth of Scripture kept Jesus' faith and trust in the Father when the sweet offers of hell were presented to him. Prayer and Scripture are the foundation of faith and the survival kit when faith is tested. And without these deep waters of prayer and Scripture, faith, which is just the wagering of our lives that God is good and purposeful and true, Without being in the deep end, their faith wavers and waffles in the fire. The tempter seduces Jesus to grab what is already his. Did you notice that? Satan is not promising Jesus anything more than he already has. He's promising to give it the wrong way. By turning away from the Father's word, but Jesus has spent long hours at the family table and he wagers that God is true. The Father can be trusted. Prayerful conversation and the Father's truth revealed in Scripture is the source of Jesus' action when the tempter calls. And so Satan is tempting the Son of God to grab what is already his identity, authority over the kingdoms of the world by abandoning the community of the Holy God. Grab it by rejecting what you know the Father has said. One of our older sons started doing a lot of online shopping a few years ago, which we counseled him to be careful of because of possible surcharges and duties and exchange rates depending on where it's coming from, right? And, he, and then he thought we were nuts because he just saw things that he wanted. And then the first bill came. And then we weren't so dumb anymore, Okay. And he changed his position and trusted our voice again. And the tempter does the same thing with Jesus. Go after what you already have by rejecting what the Father has said, which Jesus overcomes by trusting his deep relationship with the Father rather than the desire to grab. And when it comes to the cross, now here's what's really interesting. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, where Satan tempts Jesus to go after what is already his the wrong way. It's like, grab it, grab it, just go for it in a different way. Don't trust the Father. At the end of the Gospels, as Jesus goes to the cross, Satan comes back around. At the end of the tempting stories, it says uh, Satan left him for an opportune time. When the opportune time comes, it's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Satan tempts Jesus not to grab it. The temptation is, don't take the cross. Don't grab it. And again, he goes after the place of identity and the trusting of the plan of the Father. In both temptations, which are bent on destroying the redeeming and loving purposes of holy God, Jesus overcomes through prayer. Is there a clue in this? Is there a clue in this when we crumble into confusion and despair in the face of temptation, challenge, and suffering? Because I can see times when I have crumbled like a cheap suitcase And it has often been when I was piddling in the shallows of prayer, scripture, and faith. Jen and I have often seen the immense power and transformation that can happen when we finally mobilize people to pray for us. (laughs) Have you ever been through those experiences? Like, okay, we're going to make this happen. Oh, we're, we're doing just fine. Maybe we should get people to pray. And all of a sudden, stuff happens. Even churches... Even churches can only start to pray, like really pray when the manure hits the fan. Right? Did you pray for your church this week? Your board? Your pastors? Did you pray for your fellowship that were dispersed around the city? Did you pray? Even nations and cities awkwardly rally people in the toughest situations, right? Stuff will happen and be like, the, our thoughts and prayers go to, but sometimes it's just our thoughts go to. Okay. Well, I think about a lot of things, right? Our thoughts go to, and did you pray for Kelowna this week? Did you pray for the election? Did you pray for Turkey and Syria and the Kurds? Did you pray Because Jesus' practice of a deep life in prayer, scripture, and faith grounded his identity and his calling when hell came calling. This is why we need this core value. So let's explore just a a key thought about going deeper in prayer, scripture, and faith. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. Jesus says this, and it's in the middle of his sermon on the mount, as it's called, But it says he comes to the place of talking about prayer. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. That should be a very comforting thought, by the way. He already knows. He's just kind of looking for you to admit it. Okay. This, then, said Jesus, is how you should pray. What's this called? The Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, read it with me. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So Jesus turns prayer... In the context of teaching his disciples, he turns prayer into non-babbling, simple, divine, family table conversation. That's what he turns prayer into. Do you know Queen Elizabeth II's official title? Okay. I had to look it up. Okay, Her Majesty... Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and of her other realms and territories, Queen, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith. Wow. Now, what more might the creator of the universe deserve as an address? But Jesus invites us to the family table of the one holy God with the words... Our Father, Dad, we honor you. The prayer is political. Your kingdom come. Your way of ruling come on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer recognizes dependence. We need you to provide our basic needs. Do you know how dependent your life is? Usually we don't. Usually we pretend we're self-sufficient. And on this Thanksgiving in North America, we can totally take for granted how a vast majority of people in the world are dependent every day. The prayer recognizes dependence. The prayer is confessional and relational. It recognizes our need for repentance, forgiveness, and grace. For we are trespassers. We're sinners. Forgive me. And it's relational because it sets the tone for my relationship with others. I'll give them mercy and grace too. We'll be merciful in our relationships. And the prayer is a cry for deliverance because we are easily tempted toward life that is not of heaven. Deliver us from evil. The prayer is a powerful summary of human need, God's glory and sovereignty, and relational beauty. The prayer is a deeper, simpler communion with God. You know, you can use this as a template for your daily prayer life. How you teach your kids or your grandkids or yourself how to pray. You follow this as a template, it is a rabbit hole into the world and a rabbit hole into your soul. (laughs) Everything can get unpacked through this prayer. (laughs) Prayer is the greater work, said Oswald Chambers. Prayer is not the last resort, which is how we often treat it, prayer is the first recourse if we want to see God's wholeness and vision of the abundant, full, and blessed life restored in ourselves, in our friends, our enemies, or in this world, then the church must go deeper in prayer. Now to Scripture. Matthew chapter 5, still in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now the law, the Old Testament law, was the revelation of God that formed the life of Israel. The law revealed God's heart and will for the nations of the earth, actually. Many times the law is this picture of a nation within a, within, among the nations. The law was not meant to be a heavy, the law was life. It introduced a way of life to the world that the world had never seen before. The prophets were God's mouthpiece, revealing his corrective and recentering word whenever, whenever Israel strayed from the law, which they often did because they were human. And the law became literally an impossibility for Israel to do on her own because the only way humanity can live like God is if we realize we can't, <laughs> that we need grace and the spirit of god and so the prophets would come and point to a day when god would accomplish a new covenant a new promise where the law would be written on the human heart and matthew 5:17 jesus reveals that the law and the prophets find their completeness in him i've not come to abolish them i've come to fulfill them to bring them to their completion In Jesus, both the perfection of God and the prophetic promises of God to finish what he started are revealed. And Jesus Jesus becomes the tiniest point of light through which the salvation and redemption of God can enter the world. Scripture points to him. He's the fulfillment of God's truth revealed. He is the word made flesh. And all scripture is God-breathed, points to him, and the divine family table and will train us for salvation and righteousness and equip us to know Jesus and make him known. And God has spoken. Jesus is God's word accomplished and fulfilled, and scripture points ahead to him and points back to him. If we want to know eternal life and discern what God is up to, we must weigh deeply and daily and in community into scripture. So if prayer is the work, then Scripture is the light by which we work. It equips us with the language of heaven, the vision of heaven, the correction of heaven. In Scripture, heaven cuts through the confusion of being human and points us to Jesus, the word that fully revealed what God is like. And a light is shone on our path. Biblical scholar Kenneth Bailey tells the story of being invited to speak in Latvia uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the in the late 80s and early 1990s, and his talk was attended by mostly young adults who had been raised in socialist atheistic worldviews. And he he asked one woman, "How how did you become a Christian?" And this young lady she says, "Well, there was no church in our village." My grandparents and all my family were atheists, and she had not been influenced at all by any mission activity. So how did she become a Christian? Well, she said, well, at funerals, we were allowed to recite the Lord's Prayer. It was the only place. And as a young child, I would hear these strange words, and I had no idea why we recited them. And when freedom came at last, I had the opportunity to search for their meaning. And this, then this line, she says, When you are in total darkness, the tiniest point of light is very bright. Yeah. For me, the Lord's Prayer was that point of light. And by the time I found its meaning, I was a Christian. When you're in total darkness, the tiniest point of light is very bright. The prayer, of course, recited at funerals was what we recited together, which was just Scripture. Without the light of God-breathed Scripture, we walk in confusion and darkness, even if we're convinced our sight is fine. The person who has never had glasses assumes fuzzy sight is normal. I remember the, what on earth? When in grade six, I got glasses for the first time and I could see the board. I'm like, I just, really? Without his words, Jesus said that we're building our lives on sand and we crumble in the storms. That's how he ends the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter seven. Going deep into scripture allows us to have the light to walk through life. Now, finally, faith, which begins very small. Move further in Matthew to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? They had tried to drive out a demon and it didn't work. And Jesus replied, because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there. It'll move. Nothing will be impossible for you. It's like I said, the disciples had failed to cast out this demon. Jesus comes, in with a word, boom, the demon's gone. And disciples ask why they can't do it. And Jesus says, well, your faith is too little. Now, we have to hear that. We, we think, well, wow, those crazy disciples and their they just don't have enough faith. They just needed to squint more and believe harder, right? No, Jesus is actually saying your faith was actually too short. It's actually like a, a word of a, like quantity, as if, as if you needed 100 units of faith to cast out the demon and all they had was 57. Like It's actually a quantitative word. It's just like you haven't quite grown up enough. Your faith isn't, hasn't grown enough. It's too little and Jesus points them to the greater possibility found in something seemingly even smaller. Did you notice that? Your faith is too little, so let's think about the smallest seed possible. Does that make any sense? <laughs> but my faith is too little. Well, let's think about a mustard seed. Well, that's even smaller. Stink. What hope is there in this? A mustard seed is small, but it's packed with power. Any seed is packed with power. When you plant a seed, you are working with endless possibilities of fruitfulness, right? Like, you could fill the world with that one seed, actually. Every seed contains more than enough. A seed is faith that we can waste goodness. Did you catch that? A seed is faith that you can waste goodness. Think about creation. Are there enough seeds to go around? We've got a whole whack of apple orchards around here with a whole bunch of apples that will not be picked this year, don't we? There is so much seed being wasted. But this is what God does everywhere. He wastes goodness all over the place. That's our call. To have these little, little seeds of power-packed goodness to say, we're going to plant that thing. As in this world, faith can be seen as small and irrelevant and merely th- therapeutic, can't it? Well, you need faith, clearly, Marcus, because you've got problems, right? Not big problems. You've, yeah. You know what I mean? People look at faith like for those who need therapy. <laughs> you need help, so it's good you have faith. Now. Faith wagers it all on the past, present, and future promises of God. Faith is a seed, a simple walk of trust that even a child can live, that activates the power of God and brings heaven to earth. If prayer is the work and scripture is the light, then faith is the seed we sow as we walk in the ripples of calling that God has put on our lives. Faith isn't just believing a few statements or ideas about God are true. That's not faith. Faith is small acts of God-revealing speech and obedience in the world that is discovered in prayer and given light by Scripture. It's not squinting the eyes and trying to think harder. It's sourced in lingering longer at the family table of God and then living from that place of identity, will, and power. In Scripture, faith is always belief in God seated in practice trust in God, seated in practice. Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 2. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now, were the ancients commended for thinking really hard about God? Or were they commended for planting seeds of unlikely hope in the midst of a world that was broken? you know the answer. Faith is a power-seed-packed way of life that you activate because you sit at the divine table and walk by the light of his word. Deeper faith means planting heaven by our small, obedient walk with God. We climb on the shoulders of those who have been faithful before us. We trust God to do greater things in a world, crying out for just the tiniest point of light, the smallest seed that might help earth smell a bit more like heaven. And so as you do the work of prayer and live by the light of scripture, God will ask us to trust him obediently as those called to know Jesus and make him known. Prayer is the work Scripture is the light. Faith is the walk. This is your call. This is the deep end. Church, let's jump in. Would you still your heart with me? Pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. As one made in the image of God, you are invited to the divine family table because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. He's broke down every barrier in himself, the sin that separated you, and you are welcome there to converse with God, to know who you are, to know hope, to know your identity, and to live a life of faith. And so, Lord, we worship you. We thank you that you have not only created us and created the beauty around us, but you've responded to the way that beauty in us and in creation has been broken by sin, and you've dealt with that through Jesus Christ, who the law and the prophets pointed to. We thank you that you invite us into conversation with you Thank you that you invite us to know your heart and your will. That you invite us to still ourselves. And God, uh, we confess that many times we ram through a week without ever doing it. And then we wonder why we're confused. Or why we're struggling. Why we don't have discernment for what's in front of us. Sometimes we've never even thought of doing that together with others. Thank you that your Holy Spirit draws us to one another in a union of opposites and equips us. So God, we long to go deeper. So what you've, what you've stirred in us today, Lord, let us dive in. Let us build rhythms in prayer and the Word and then taking and planting seeds of faith as we walk out our trust and our wagering that despite all that's going on, you are good, can be trusted, and you are the way, the truth, and the life. We worship you.